we're in the midst of a series that's talking about the uh, parable of the prodigal son. And you'll find that in, in Luke chapter 15. And uh, as I mentioned last week, a lot of the material for this series comes from a book by uh, Henry Nowen, um, who uh, spent time really, really studying um, Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal, which actually I've got now a uh, not exactly life-size representation. That's about half-size. Um, the original is twice that big. But um, so maybe you know, if you want to take a you know, come up and take a look. There's so much detail there. There's so much going on. But realize that you really couldn't see it very well up on the screen. It was kind of tiny. <laughs> so uh, hopefully that will help maybe a little bit. Uh, to give you more of a sense of what the real thing uh, is really all about. And so he had a lot of observations of the story based on the, the painting and, uh, and sort of what he saw there. And so last week we looked at verses that um, really surrounded the whole idea of the son's return. First week we, we talked about the younger son's leaving and what that sort of says. Last week, it was about the younger son's decision to finally come home, to return. And by looking at what the younger son was kind of thinking and what the actions were, um, we, we talked about three ways in which we can kind of begin our own journey home to the Father uh, from whatever far country we are. We said you need to rediscover your identity. That's what the, son, the younger son did when, you know, Scripture says, when he came to himself which I think says when he finally understood who he really was, that's when he started to, to come home. Um, the second thing he did was to reclaim his sonship. And uh, you see that in, in what, sort of the speech that he's rehearsing you know, on the way home. Even though he says he's not worthy to be called the father's son, even in that he's acknowledging that he was a son, that he is a son may not be worthy to be called that, but it doesn't change who he is. He's still a son. Okay, so he's reclaiming his sonship in a manner of speaking. And then uh, to repent and receive God's forgiveness, which is what he does when he comes to the Father. And he can barely even get out what it is he's prepared to say before the Father embraces him. Um, so we're going to look at now another part of the story. This part is uh, <clears throat> found in uh, chapter 15. It's verses 25 through 31. And uh, we're going to look a little bit at the older son now. So, uh, starting in verse 25, Luke 15, 25. Now the older son was out working in the field when his brother returned. And as he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing. So he called over one of the servants and asked, what's going on? The servant replied, it's your younger brother. He's returned home, and your father is throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. The older son became angry and refused to go in and celebrate. So his father came out and pleaded with him, come and enjoy the feast with us. The son said, father, listen, how many years have I been working like a slave for you, performing every duty you've asked of a faithful son? and never once disobeyed you. But you've never thrown a party for me because of my faithfulness. Never once have you even given me a goat that I could feast on and celebrate with my friends like he's doing now. 
But look at this son of yours. He comes back after wasting your wealth on prostitutes and reckless living, and here you are throwing a great feast to celebrate for him. Now, as I mentioned last week, it's certainly true that the return of the younger son is a central event in the story, and it's also a central event in Rembrandt's painting. But what's interesting about it is that Rembrandt didn't situate it in the middle of the canvas, like you might think, to make it truly the focal point. He puts the return and the celebration off to the side. The reunion takes place on the left side of the painting, while on the right side is sort of dominated by this tall, stern, elder son that just stands there. And there's this large open space that is separating the father and his elder son. And it's really space that I think is kind of, it's this, creates this tension in the painting that you know, needs to be resolved. It's crying out for some kind of a resolution. And so the main observer in this, in this portrayal uh, is really keeping his distance, and he seems very unwilling to participate in the father's welcome of this younger son. So it causes us to wonder, what's going on inside this man? What is he going to do? Is he going to come a little bit closer and embrace his brother as his father did? Or is he going to turn and walk away in anger and disgust? The parable that Jesus called, you know, we, he didn't call it the, the story of the prodigal son. He didn't call it anything at all. Our Bible authors have added titles to it, right? And so it's sort of become known as the prodigal son. But I think it could just as well have been called the parable of two sons who left home. See, not only did the younger son leave home to look for freedom and happiness in a distant country, but the one who stayed home effectively left home as well. From the outside, he looks like he did all the things a good son is supposed to do. But on the inside, he wandered far, far away from his father. He did his duty. He worked hard every day. He fulfilled all his obligations. But he became increasingly unhappy and unfree. So the insights that come from this section of the story reveal a lot about how our own thinking and our own behavior parallels that of the older son. So in what way do we stay at home, but at the same time leave our father's house, just like the older son did? Well, I think first and foremost, you stay at home and yet leave when you choose to be resentful. It's kind of hard for us, I think, to concede that this bitter, resentful, angry man that we see portrayed in this painting as well as what's presented to us in the story might be closer to us in a spiritual way than the lustful younger brother. The more we think about the elder son, the more we have a tendency to recognize ourself in him. Perhaps we wonder if it's not especially the elder sons who want to live up 
to the expectations of their parents and be considered obedient and dutiful. They often want to please. They often fear being a disappointment to their parents. But they often also experience quite early in life a certain envy toward their younger brothers and sisters who seem to be much less concerned about pleasing and much freer in doing their own thing. Have you known the feeling of envy toward the wayward son? It's this emotion that arises when you see your friends having a good time doing all sorts of things that you yourself condemn. You call their behavior reprehensible or even immoral. But at the same time, you kind of wondered why you didn't have the nerve to do some or all of it yourself. The obedient and dutiful life of which you are so proud, for which you are praised for, sometimes feels like a burden that was laid on your shoulders and continues to oppress you, even when you have accepted it to such a degree that you can't throw it off. I don't know about you, but I have very little difficulty in identifying with the elder son who complained, all these years I have slaved for you and never once disobeyed any order of yours, yet you never offered me so much as a kid for me to celebrate with my friends. In this complaint, obedience and duty have become a burden and service has become a slavery. Henry Nouwen, in the book, tells a story of a time when this became very real for him. A friend of his, who had recently become a Christian, criticized him for not being very prayerful. This was a priest. (laughs) Okay, he was a priest. The criticism, as you might expect, made him very angry. And so he's, you know, he's kind of having one of those conversations with himself we talked about last week, you know, the muttering that goes on in your head. And so he's muttering to himself, how dare he teach me a lesson about prayer? For years he's lived a carefree and undisciplined life, while since childhood I have scrupulously lived the life of faith. Now he's converted and he starts telling me how to behave. And then he stopped. And he realized that this inner resentment revealed to him just how lost he truly was. He'd stayed home, and he hadn't really wandered off, but he had not yet lived a free life in his father's house. His anger and his envy revealed to him his own bondage. It's something that's not unique to him. There are many elder sons and elder daughters who have left mentally while remaining physically at home. And it's this leaving that's characterized by judgment and condemnation, anger and resentment, bitterness and jealousy that is so pernicious and so damaging to the human heart. Looking deeply into ourselves and then around us at the lives of other people, Perhaps we wonder which does more damage, the lust of the younger son 
or the resentment of the older son. There's a lot of resentment among the just and righteous among us. There's a lot of judgment and condemnation and prejudice among the saints. There's so much frozen anger among people who are so concerned about avoiding sin. You see, the lostness of the resentful saint is so hard to to kind of put our finger on precisely because it's so closely wedded to the desire to be good and virtuous. We know from our own life how diligently we've tried to be good and acceptable and likable and a worthy example to other people. There was always this conscious effort to avoid the pitfalls of sin and this constant fear of giving in to temptation. But with all of that, there came this seriousness, this moralistic intensity that maybe even contained a touch of fanaticism that made it increasingly difficult for us to feel at home in our Father's house. And so we become less free, less spontaneous, less playful, And others come to see us more as kind of a heavy person. And so like the the older son, our resentment causes us to leave home. I think the second way that you stay at home and yet you leave is when you choose to live without joy. See, when, when we listen very carefully to the words with which the elder son attacks his father, it's very self-righteous, very self-pitying, jealous words, you really hear a deeper complaint that's going on underneath all of that. And it's a complaint that comes from the heart that feels like it's never received exactly what it was due. It's the complaint that it's expressed in countless subtle and not-so-subtle ways. And it sort of forms this bedrock of human resentment. It's a complaint that cries out, I tried so hard, worked so long, did so much, still have not received what others get so easily. Why do people not thank me, not invite me, not play with me, not honor me, while they pay so much attention to those who take life so easily? And so casually. It's in the spoken or unspoken complaint that we recognize the elder son in us. Often we may catch ourselves complaining about little rejections, little impolitenesses, little negligences. Time and again we discover within us that murmuring, whining, grumbling, lamenting, and griping that goes on even against our own will. And the more we dwell on the matters in question, the worse it becomes. I mean, I just got to stop here for a second and say, I just, I so identify with this because I am an elder son, all right? And I had a younger brother. And my younger brother definitely went to the far country. And 
you know, I, I just identify with this so much because so, so much of this relates to, I can relate it to my own life. You know, this, this desire to always want to please people, to try to do the right thing in all circumstances, and yet, you know, feeling somehow jealous and resentful, you know, of my younger brother and others who don't seem to have any of those same constraints. You know, <laughs> my brother was just a rebel. He played tennis in high school. And if you look in the yearbook, I think it's his senior year, picture of the tennis team, you can easily pick him out because he's the one showing his middle finger to the camera. Kind of in a surreptitious way so that it's not really obvious, but there it is. That was my brother Mike, you know, and so that's just kind of how he approached life. And I mean, it was—I <laughs> just didn't get it at all, because I just was so not that way. Um, and so, you know, the more you dwell on, you know, those feelings, and the more that they start to consume you, you find out that there's this enormous dark power that kind of draws you more and more into that those inner feelings, that complaint that, that, that is there. And then you start on this pattern of, of condemning others, condemning yourself, feeling very self-righteous, rejecting yourself, and it, it kind of just keeps reinforcing in this weird circle that just goes around that is actually a, a funnel that spins down. And so every time we allow ourselves to get seduced by those feelings, it just spins us down this endless spiral of self-rejection. And so if we let ourselves get drawn into that, into this vast interior labyrinth of our complaints, we become more and more and more lost until in the end, we feel that we are the most misunderstood, rejected, neglected, and despised person in the world. Complaining is self-perpetuating and counterproductive. And whenever we express our complaints in the hope of evoking pity, in receiving the satisfaction that we really desire, the result's always the opposite of what we hope to get. Tell me if I'm not true in saying that someone who complains all the time is hard to live with. And very few people know exactly how to respond to the complaints that, that are made by this, by this person who's rejecting themselves all the time. And the tragedy of the whole thing is that often the complaint that the person has, once it's expressed actually leads to the one thing that the person is trying to avoid, and that's more rejection. And so if you look at it from this perspective, the elder son's inability to kind of share in the joy of his father becomes more understandable. See, he comes home from the fields, and he hears that there's music, and there's obviously dancing going on. 
just they weren't Baptists. So he hears music and dancing. So he knows that there's joy in the household. So he immediately becomes suspicious. See, once that self-rejecting complaint has formed in us, we lose the spontaneity that we have even to the extent that that joy can't evoke joy in us anymore. And so the story goes on to say... He calls one of the servants and he asks what it's all about. So there's this fear that he's been excluded. That someone didn't tell him what was going on and that he's being kept out of the loop on things. So this complaint immediately surfaces. Why was I not informed about all of this? And so this poor unsuspecting servant who's all excited and he's eager to share this great news, you know, that this younger brother has come home and the father is happy. So he says, well, your brother's come home. Your father's killed the fatted calf. We've been been preparing him because we've got him back safe and sound. And yet the elder brother can't receive the joy that's in that statement. Instead of relief and gratitude, the joy that the servant has summons up the opposite emotion. He was angry, and then he refused to go in. Joy and resentment cannot coexist. And so the music and the dancing, instead of inviting to joy, becomes an even greater cause for withdrawing, for pulling back. And this experience of not being able to enter into joy is the experience of a resentful heart. The elder son couldn't enter into the house and share in the joy of his father. He had this inner complaint and it paralyzed him and it let the darkness engulf him. And I, I think you have to agree that, that Rembrandt in his painting sort of sensed the deeper meaning of this when he paints this elder son at the side of the platform where the younger son is being received in his father's joy. He didn't depict the celebration that's going on because those were just external signs of the joy that the father was feeling. And in place of the party, Rembrandt painted light If you look, you notice how light the father and son are relative to the rest of the painting. But in the story, you can imagine that the elder son is standing outside in the dark, not wanting to enter the lighted house filled with all the happy noises. If you're like me, you probably wonder... Because we always want these things to conclude, right? You want, you want an ending. So you start to wonder, what happened to the elder son? How did this resolve? Did he finally get persuaded by his father to come in and, and join the party? Did he finally embrace his brother and welcome him home as the father did? Did he eventually sit down with his father and his brother and enjoy the meal that had been prepared? 
But see, the painting nor the parable really tells us anything about the final son's willingness to let himself be found. Is the elder son willing to confess that he, too, is a, need, is a sinner in need of forgiveness? Is he willing to acknowledge that he's not any better than his brother is? So we're left with these questions. And just as we don't know what the younger son did after this, and or you know how he got along with his father after this moment in time, we don't know what the elder son did either. The one thing that we do know with unwavering certainty is the heart of the father. It's a heart of limitless mercy. Now, unlike a fairy tale, this parable provides us with no happy ending. Instead, it leaves us face to face with one of life's hardest spiritual choices. To trust or not to trust in God's all-forgiving love. We're the only ones who can make that choice. In response to their complaint, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the scribes not only with the return of the prodigal son, but also with the resentful elder son. He's telling them this parable in response to those things that they were accusing him of. And so it must have come as a shock to these dutifully religious people because they finally had to face their own complaint and choose how they would respond to God's love for sinners. Would they be willing to join them at the table as Jesus did? It was, and it still is, a real challenge for them, for us, for every human being who is caught in resentment and tempted into this way of life. The more we reflect on this on the elder son that's in us, the more we realize how deeply rooted this form of lostness really is and how hard it is to return home from there. Returning home from some lustful escapade seems a whole lot easier than returning home from this cold anger that's kind of rooted itself in the deepest parts of our being. Because that resentment's not something that can be easily distinguished or dealt with rationally. It's far more pernicious. It's like something that's kind of attached itself to the underside of our virtue. Because we think, well, isn't it good to be obedient and dutiful, law-abiding, hard-working, and self-sacrificing? But it still seems that our resentments and our complaints are mysteriously tied to such praiseworthy attitudes. And so we see that, we make that connection, and it can cause us to despair. Because at the very moment that we want to speak or act out of our most generous self, we get caught in some form of anger or resentment. Just as it seems that we are choosing to be our most selfless, 
we find ourselves being obsessed with not being loved. Just when we do our utmost to accomplish a task and do it well, we find ourselves questioning why others don't give them themselves as we do. Just when we think we're capable of overcoming our own temptations, we start to feel envious towards those who have given into theirs. Seems wherever that virtuous self goes, there's this resentful complainer that's along for the ride. Can the elder son in us come home? Can we be found just as the younger son was found? How can we return when we're lost in this kind of resentment, when we're, we're caught up in, in jealousy, when we're imprisoned in obedience and duty that's actually lived out more like slavery? Well, I think it's clear that alone, by ourselves, we can't find ourselves. More daunting than healing ourselves as the younger son is the task of healing ourselves as the elder son. And so, confronted here with the impossibility of self-redemption, maybe now we understand Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Do not be surprised when I say you must be born from above. Indeed, something has to happen that we cannot cause ourselves to happen. We cannot be reborn from below which is to say, not by our own strength, with our own mind, with our own psychological insights. And there should be no doubt in our mind that this is the case. Because we've tried so hard in the past, I'm sure, to heal ourselves. And we've failed. And we've tried and we've failed. And we've tried and we've failed. Until, hopefully, Desperately, we realize that we can only be healed from above when God reaches down. Because what is impossible for me is possible for God. Amen? For such a simple story, there are so many things going on, so many insights so many ways that you're speaking to us about our own spiritual condition and how Father it's possible to stay at home and yet leave at the same time and Lord I confess that's that's me So I just ask your forgiveness for that. And Father, I pray now that this time would be a time for the restoration of joy. Not only joy in each person's life, but an acceptance and a, even a reveling in, in the joy that's experienced by others. That if anybody here has difficulty in 
being happy or sharing in the joy or the happiness when something good happens to someone else, that you would just touch that place today. Restore joy in all areas of our lives. So I give you thanks and praise, Father God. Just ask your continued touch and blessing upon these people. Bless them as they leave this place. As they go out into the world and engage with others. Father, I pray that every soul that leaves this building becomes a light into your kingdom. And so I pray as well that you will put people in their path with whom they can engage and share the good news of what Jesus has done for them. So we give you thanks and praise, honor and glory, Lord Father. And we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name.